Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Psalms and the the 131st chapter, Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's word. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have quieted and calmed myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word and who has called us to engage in reflection on that word. We pray that you would now sweeten this word in our hearts and in our lives, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more honor you along the path of life, even as we more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, those of you who know me at all know that I like words. Uh, Here are three words that are related to each other. Frantic, frenzied, and the third one is frenetic. I like the last one in particular. Frenzied, frantic, frenetic. Uh, These words actually come into English through French, and they got into French from Latin, and they got into Latin from Greek. And the Greek culprit that lies behind all of these words means delirious. And uh, sometimes that's how we feel, isn't it? Uh, Even in the Christmas season, we can feel delirious, Uh, frenzied, frenetic, frantic. We live in a noisy world. Sometime today, try to find absolute silence. I mean, absolute silence, and you'll find that it's difficult to do. I remember once, a long time ago, I was speaking at a camp in California, and I had some time in the afternoon, as camps often do, so I thought, I'm going to go up into the mountains, and I'm going to just take a hike and go where it's just quiet. And so I could, as I was going up, I was getting further and further away from the noise of the volleyball game down on the campground. And as soon as that volleyball game was fading, I must have come near somebody's cabin because I heard a chainsaw. (laughs) It's just hard to find silence in this noisy world. There are all sorts of external noises. There's the noise of traffic and there's the noise of construction. Uh, There's the noise of human voices all sorts of external noises that are hard to escape from. 
But even when we can escape from those external noises, what about all the internal noise? What about all the guilt that we feel? The fear that is always churning inside? The anxiety? Perplexity? How do we find some quietness in the middle of all of this external and internal noise that we experience? And ironically, uh, a time of kind of vacation and celebration like at Christmas, for many of us, it only heightens all of the noise. Christmas season can be some of the noisiest times in our lives both in terms of all of the human activity, the frenzied shopping, but also it can be pretty noisy inside as well. Ironically, the Lord's Day is a day of rest, but especially I remember when our kids were little, it could be some of the most frantic times in the whole week. It's supposed to be a day of rest, but especially with little kids, it's not always that way, is it? Well, is it possible to experience some kind of inner tranquility in light of all of the noise that bombards us? Well, we just read Psalm 131. And if there is a quiet psalm anywhere in the 150 psalms, that is Psalm 151. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Well, let's take a look at this psalm, and I only want to do two things. Uh, We're we're mainly just going to walk right through this psalm this morning, but first I want to look at two requirements and then two results. They both start with R, so I hope you'll take them right home with you (laughs) and keep them in your remembrance, those uh, requirements and those results. To experience this kind of inner tranquility, this quietness, this Advent season, the first requirement is humility. It takes humility to experience quietness. Look again at Psalm 1, uh, Psalm 131, verse 1, where the psalmist says, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. The psalmist, some of your translations might use words like, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised up. Uh, That's a good literal translation, but the idea of the heart being lifted up, the eyes being lifted up, those are expressions for arrogance, for haughtiness. So the psalmist, in talking about this being calm and quieted, starts really by telling us that uh, quietness and arrogance just can't occupy the same space. Quietness and arrogance can't occupy the same space, and There's a reference to the heart, there's a reference to the eyes, and there's another reference to to body parts that we don't really see in English translation, and that's to the feet. Heart, eyes, feet. The psalmist kind of gives us an anatomy of arrogance. Where does arrogance start? Arrogance starts in the heart. It starts in a heart that feels 
certain things, three in particular, I think. And this is a little bit unexpected, because often when we think about arrogant people, we think of people who are really confident people. But things aren't always as they appear. And arrogance often has some deep-seated stuff going on underneath it that's all in the heart. Feelings of insecurity, feelings of insignificance, and feelings of being out of control. And this has been a kind of a plague on humanity since the fall. Remember after Adam and Eve ate the fruit? Uh, what do we see them experiencing? The first thing we see them experiencing is hiding. Now, why did they hide? They hid because they were profoundly insecure. And all I mean by insecure is afraid that they're going to be rejected. How many of you ever felt like that before? Insecurity is just the feeling of being rejected. And so when they heard God walking in the garden, they hid. And why did they hide? Because they feared that if they encountered God, he would reject them. Profound feelings of insecurity. Then as the story goes on in the early chapters of Genesis, God talks about the the, the, the frustration that Eve will experience in the child-bearing, uh, child-rearing process and the, the frustration that the man will experience as a farmer trying to eke a living out of the ground where they might have to say it was all for nothing. See, insignificance, no meaning, all ends up being purposeless. And then that that sense of being out of control, feelings of insecurity, feelings of insignificance, feelings of being out of control. If you ever feel this way, it means one thing. You're a human. This has been part of the human condition since those early chapters in Genesis. And this is really the root of arrogance. So while arrogant people often give the impression of being confident, that arrogance is the fruit of profound feelings of insecurity, insignificance, lack of control in one's life. It all starts in the heart. But notice then the the text goes on to talk about the eyes. My heart, my eyes. Because what happens is we use our eyes and the... um, One of the readings or the prayers talked about this. Maybe it was the confession that talked about our eyes lusting. See, we use our eyes, and with our eyes we look out at the world around us because we have this deep emptiness of feeling insecure and insignificant and out of control, and we use our eyes to try to find things that will fill up those needs. We use our eyes to try to find ways that we can be a people pleaser. How many of you just love when people disapprove of you? You just thrive on the disapproval of others. We don't, do we? We have this profound need to have the acceptance and approval of other people. And we do all sorts of strange things in order to make sure we never feel rejection. Because we have this need to be secure. 
And we have this avoidance of wanting to be rejected. And so we do all sorts of strange things in our relationships with other people in order to secure their love. Because we want to know that we're not going to be... That's why we speak so much of unconditional love. Why do we speak so much of unconditional love? It's because it's what we want so deeply to fill that need that we have in our hearts. We use our eyes to to find ways to to feel significant. We, We look for the right clothing. We look for the right car to drive. We look for the right house to live in. All as ways in which we can then look in the mirror and see ourselves and say, I am somebody. How do I know I am somebody? Well, look at how I dress. Look at the car that I drive. Look at the neighborhood that I live in. I'm somebody. I'm significant. We use our eyes to find all of these things. And and we we use our eyes to find ways in our relationships in particular to experience power. Whether it's in our home with our spouse or with our children or whether it's in our neighborhood or our workplace, we can become fairly manipulative in order to exercise power over other people so that we can have a sense that we're in control. So you see, arrogance starts in the heart, but then it uses the eyes to try to find ways to fill up these deep needs Then we come to that third thing where my translation says, I I do not consider things too wonderful for me. It's an interesting word in Hebrew. Uh, There's a word halach. Everybody say halach. It's kind of like the bach. You got to say halach. Okay, halach is just a good old garden variety word for walk. But there's a, this is a special form of that word that's not halach, it's hilech. That's something different. This is hilech. Hilech means to pace. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That's what the text is saying. See, it goes from the heart to the eyes to the feet. Frantically pacing. Frenetically pacing. Pacing in a frenzied way. If I can only do, 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 what's the M word? More. Then I can have, what's the M word? More. And finally I can be, and then you fill in the blank with whatever it is, but it's happy in one way or another. You, you all, you, you individually and as families define what that happiness looks like. See, that's the treadmill. That's the treadmill of arrogance. We feel empty inside, insecure, insignificant, out of control. We use our eyes to find ways to fill up these needs. And we are so desperate to have them filled that we frantically pace back and forth throughout life, whether it's at the mall or internally in our own hearts, in order to fill up these needs so that we can have a sense that we're secure and that we're significant and we have some kind of control in our lives and that life is not totally random and chaotic. You know, with those eyes, we think of uh, what we confessed 
comes from 1 John 2.16, that phrase, the lust of the eyes. We remember Eve. Remember Eve and the fruit? When she saw that the fruit was good, we remember David, don't we? When Bathsheba was on the roof, the text says, on the roof, the text says, he saw her beauty. See, the eyes are the hinge in between the heart and the feet. Because we're, we're operating out of emptiness, our eyes look for ways to fill so that they can guide our feet in knowing what to run after more and more and more. That's, see, the, the psalmist is saying that's the kind of arrogance that we have to avoid. Arrogance and quietness simply can't occupy the same space because it's arrogance that produces this kind of frantic level of activity. Now, let me just say one thing. Frantic and busy are not the same. On the surface, they might look identical. Two people might be at the mall walking at the same speedy pace. One is busy. The other is frantic. Because frantic is something that comes from inside. Where does it start? It comes from in the heart. And while frantic and busy may look alike, they're not alike. Busyness is a good thing. Certainly not all the time. That's why God said six and one, work six and rest one. Six busy days, that's a good thing. Six frantic days, not so good. Not so good. So, humility is going to produce quietness, not arrogance. And humility is really the fruit of three simple truths. That security that you're so desperately looking for, you've got it in God. If the gospel is anything, the gospel is saying that God loves you in spite of who you are. And that's really what we want. We don't really want to be loved because of who we are, because we all know that dark side that's in there. We all want to be loved in spite of who we are. We all want to be loved with a love that will never let us go. If I can brag just a a minute uh, about my baby, who's 21. She called yesterday morning and I picked up the phone. I actually had her mother's phone because I was doing the banking and Adele keeps her register on her phone. So I transfer the stuff on Saturday mornings to my Quicken, uh, you know, take care of all of that kind of stuff. So Adele's phone rings. I have it because I'm working on the banking. I pick it up. It's Annie. I can tell something's wrong right away. And just as she starts to talk, she's crying. And now here's what I'm, I'm going to brag about. Uh, the reason why she's crying, she's a junior at UCF. She got a C plus as a final grade. And uh, the reason why I'm bragging, you think that's an odd thing to brag about. <laughs> One of the things I said to her in the conversation is, Annie, you are a junior at UCF, and this is the first time in your whole academic career you've ever experienced one of these things called a, a C. I said, that's pretty good in my estimation. But you know what the first thing I told her was? As soon as I gave her space 
to, to really feel disappointed and to cry and to let me know how she felt. Oh, by the way, the other thing I said to her, I see I have an ability to see the bright side of things. I said, Annie, how wonderful that you feel disappointed. Some people wouldn't care. I'd much rather have you be disappointed than not care. By the way, she got an 83. B minus was 84. She missed it by one point. I also explained to her from a teacher's perspective how it's still a C plus. But at any rate, what was I saying? Get me talking about my daughter. Oh, but the, the, here's the first thing I said to her after you know, she had an opportunity to express all of those sad feelings. I simply said, Annie, you are not your grades. Now, that's true whether the grade is a C plus or an A. You are not your grades. Your, your sense of significance does not come from how well you perform, right? Your sense of significance comes from how well Christ has performed in your place. Uh, The reason why you can be loved with a love that will never let you go is because God loves you based on performance, and Christ has performed perfectly in your place, and so God loves you with a love that can never let you go because you're perfect in Christ, not based on how well you perform. And so it really is okay to get that C. It it doesn't affect who you are as a person. You're, You're loved. You're loved with a love that can never let you go. And so while it's nice to have all of these other forms of human love, it's not at all necessary. You have in the Father's unconditional love everything you need to feel perfectly secure all the time. And living out the purpose that God has given for you is the only thing that you need in order to experience profound significance in this world. You are significant because you've been made in the image of God and he's given you a purpose to live out and you are living that out to the best of your ability based on the grace of God in Christ. And because God is ultimately in control, not you, because God is ultimately in control, you can exercise whatever levels of control that God has given to you in the home, in the neighborhood, in the workplace, under the sovereignty of God. It's because of who God is in relationship to you that those deep... See, here's the thing. Before Adam and Eve ate that fruit, how much insecurity did we feel? None. How much insignificance did we feel? None. How much sense of out of control did we feel? None. And so what does Christ do? Why did he come? He came to... Make his blessings flow far as the... And trust me, these feelings of insecurity, insignificance, out of control, that's a manifestation of the curse. And Christ came to fill you up so that you can feel the security of your Father's love. You can feel that sense of significance made for a purpose. You can feel that sense of control. You're not living in a chaotic world because ultimately God's in control. You see, you start to think that way, you see humility. 
Because you realize who you are in relationship to God. So, the first requirement is humility. Ironically, the second requirement is effort. If you want to experience this quietness, this tranquility, it takes work. Notice how the psalmist says that in verse 2. He says, beginning of 2, but I have calmed and quieted myself. Just note two things here. Number one, he uses two verbs, not one. He doesn't just say, I've calmed myself. He doesn't just say, I have quieted myself. He said, I have calmed and quieted myself. The doubling up of the verbs is showing that it takes some effort to experience this. It's natural for us to feel insecure, insignificant, and out of control. That takes no work at all. But it takes work in order to experience the opposite. The other thing that doesn't come out in English is that in the Hebrew text, there's an oath formula. Like, you know, traditionally you go to court, you put your hand on the Bible, you raise your right hand. Those are things that we do to say, I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You're under oath. Well, Hebrew had its own way. Hebrew culture had its own way of doing that and expressing that. And they didn't say, I'm going to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But they used a certain kind of expression that is embedded right in the text at this point. When the psalm, He starts with this oath formula. In other words, there's an emphasis on the, the solemnity and the effort that it takes in order to experience uh, tranquility. We have to work at it. Well, what do we, what do, we do to, to work at it? I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as we go, but certainly we've already hinted at it, right? We've already hinted from the first verse in terms of what, we, what work we have to do to experience this, and that is that we've got to reverse that paradigm, because the paradigm is if I can only do more, then I can have more, and finally I will be more whatever. We've got to turn that upside down. Because I am everything. I am complete. I am perfect. I am secure. I am significant. I am in control. That's who I am in Christ. The old has fallen away. You're new creatures in Christ. You're united to Christ by grace through faith. And because of your union with Christ, how does the Father see you? He sees you as people who are perfectly loved, perfectly significant, perfectly in control. That's who you are as new creatures. That's where you start. You're starting from fullness, not from emptiness. And because of who you are, then you can do. You can even do it in a very, very busy way. But you're not going to be doing it in a frenetic, frantic, frenzied way, because you're doing out of fullness, not out of emptiness. There's no sense of desperation. And then wouldn't you know God, in his grace, lets you have. He, he lets you have. There's nothing wrong with the clothing and with the cars and with the houses. It's all good. It's all part of God's creation. Nothing innately wrong with any of that. The problem is when it's playing the wrong role and we got the paradigm upside down. But when we put the paradigm right, 
Those are all good and wonderful things that are sources of great joy. Uh, By the way, just as a reminder, when you get to heaven, what's your driveway going to be paved with? It's going to be paved with gold. Must mean that a golden driveway is pretty good. Yes or or no? Yes. And what did Jesus teach you to pray? Uh, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray for more and more of that heaven. Now, I'm not sure I would encourage you to pray for a gold driveway, might not last very long in in this culture because not everybody sees things the way you do. But you get the point. That that all of those things that we we strive for to make us secure and significant and in control, they're all good things. We got to realize that they're not the source of our security, our significance, our being in control. They're the fruit of it. They're the fruit of it. Always start with who you are in Christ. Secure, significant, in control. Then you can do everything that you need to do, even in a busy way, but you will be quiet inside. And then, in God's grace, you'll have all of those things that are good things uh, to enjoy in God's world. Those are the two requirements. Humility and effort. Now, two results. And the first one is obvious. The first one is quietness within yourself. Notice in the second part of verse 2, the psalmist says, I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Quietness within yourself. The psalmist invites you here to use a sanctified imagination. He wants you to picture two things together. First of all, he wants you to, when you start to feel that level of frenzied, frenetic, frantic rising, he says, just stop for a moment and picture two things. First of all, picture yourself. Picture yourself as a weaned child. Now, just to tell you an odd story, I didn't grow up around nursing Mothers. Uh, I grew up in a really conservative uh, subcultural kind of context. If there was any nursing going on, it wasn't in the living room. It was like over there in some hidden corner of the world. So I'm a, I'm a freshman in college. One of my professors and his wife have a new baby. They have a niece from out of town, and they asked me if I would take her out to some church function, and I said, sure, I will. And so as I go to see them, um, the mother was sitting in the living room with other family members who were visiting, and she had the baby, and she had the baby under a diaper. And I thought, well, I'm going to just be real social and go say hi to the baby. (laughs) I did. I walked over and I picked up the diaper to say hi to the baby. Well, never did, never did that again. I don't even know why I told you that story. It has nothing to do with the sermon. It is kind of related, right? Because we're talking about, the Bible talks about a weaned child, huh? Here's the point. Having had four kids and having had lots of friends with lots of kids, you know this other picture, right? Uh, 
You know a picture of a hungry baby who's a nursing baby. Uh, Picture maybe mom driving somewhere with a hungry baby in the back seat in the, uh, you know, in that car seat thing. And that baby's just, and mom can't do anything at all but drive. That's a picture of frantic and frenetic. Uh, That child is operating out of deficit, out of emptiness, and mom knows it. Now the opposite. Picture a child that is weaned now. The child that is hungry and at the breast is just frantic to get that food. Yes? Picture that same child now as weaned on the lap, calm, quiet, content, all needs met. That's how God wants you to picture yourself. That's who you are in Christ. All of your needs are met. You don't need to be frantically, frenetically, in a frenzied way, going after all of this stuff to fill up those needs. They're already met in Christ. Picture yourself as a weaned child on the lap of your mother. Now, here's the other thing that God wants you to picture. and Stay with me for a moment. God wants you to picture him as your mother. Now, that probably sounds a little strange, right? Because what did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father. And predominantly in the Bible, God is imaged as Father, as King. God is imaged in male terms, predominantly, but not exclusively. The Bible does image God at times, as female. And this is one of those cases. I won't take time to look at all of these, but go back sometime to Psalm 123. It's one of these songs of ascent. It's in this cluster that we're looking at. And there the psalmist says, As the eyes of a servant look to the eyes of the master, and as the eyes of a female servant look to the Look to her Gavira, her mistress. Although for us, a mistress is like a, a bad thing, right? Gavira. A Gavira is a woman who has power. A woman who is in authority over others. So when God is imaging himself as a woman, he's not imaging himself in any weak way. He's imaging himself in Psalm 123 as a Gavira. You're to picture yourself as a female servant looking to the eye, looking with your eyes up to your Guvira, the one who's in authority. Guvira could be a queen. Guvira can be used in reference to the queen mother. A woman who's in authority, a woman who's in control, a woman who has power over others, a woman who's going to take care and meet your every need. Now also in the prophet uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 13. Let's take a moment and look at that. Isaiah chapter 66 and 13. God says, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. God says, I'm like a mother. And you all know what it's like for a mother to comfort a child. Well, I want you to realize that in the same way that a mother comforts a child, I comfort you. I want you to think of me as that special mother 
who provides that special comfort uh, in a way that only a mother can. God is imaging himself here. He's comparing himself. He's like, he's like a mother. But there's one more that's even closer to home. Isaiah 49, 15. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? And have no compassion on the child she has born? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously what? No. A mother cannot forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born. But notice what the psalmist says. Though she may forget, I will not. When you think of me, God says, I want you to think of me as a mother with the baby at the breast. And how impossible it is for that mother to forsake that baby. Maternal instinct. Well, that maternal instinct is a picture of what my relationship with you is like. I'm like a, here I'm like a mother that is nursing a child. But back to our psalm, Psalm 131, what's it say? God is like that mother holding the child because the child's already weaned. It's it's a picture of God who will perfectly comfort you, perfectly care for you, perfectly take care of you, perfectly provide for your every need. If you really view God as a mother who perfectly cares and provides and takes care of you, how can you possibly run around frenzied and frantic and frenetic? You see, that, all of those F words are coming out of emptiness. But if you believe who God says he is in this text, then there's no room for all of that frenetic, frenzied stuff because you're living once again out of fullness. The fullness of who you are in relationship to God. So the first result is this quietness that comes as you learn to view yourself as a weaned child on the lap of your divine mother. Now, please don't write to the presbytery. (laughs) I'm just explaining to you what the text says. And And again, it doesn't do it frequently, but it does image God in female motherly terms. And if the Bible does it, it must be okay with us, right? Now, there's one other result, and that result is verse three, ministry to other people. Notice how the psalm ends. Going back to our text, Psalm 131, verse 3. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. As soon as David has quieted his own soul, he turns immediately to reach out to other people. See, quietness is not a retreat into self-centeredness. Quietness is is seeking to be alone and to be quiet and to be still inside. It's a state of being that is not only good for you, but it's a state of being that actually empowers you to be beneficial to other people. See, because when you're all frantic and frenetic and frenzied, you're not much good to others. You'll tend to do more harm than you will good. But when you're calm and when you're quiet... And when you're operating out of this sense of inner tranquility, then you're in a position really to be of benefit to others. So what's good for you ends up being good for others 
as well. David wanted others to experience what he had learned to experience. Humility and quietness and hope. He says hope in the Lord. And this hope is simply the humility that comes from turning away from self-sufficient, frantic living to a quiet, humble dependence on God. Well, let me wrap this up by just giving you three things to remember. See, R, R, remember. Uh, I do want you to remember the, the results, right? And I want you to remember the requirements uh, and remember these three things. Remember Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children. Don't go walking about in matters that are too deep for you. Realize that you're finite, you don't understand everything. Uh, Wanting to know everything, wanting to know all the reasons for why everything happens in life is one of the reasons why we can get frantic and frenetic and frenzied. Just remember, there is someone who does know, and since he knows, you don't have to. Remember that the deep things belong to God and leave them with him. So remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. Remember to focus your heart on God. Psalm 116, Psalm 62, they say, Find rest, O my soul, once more in God. Remember that God really does love you with a love that you can't lose. You didn't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to lose it. You're secure in the love of God perfectly because Jesus has done everything necessary. And because of that, you can live a life of real meaning, real purpose, as you simply live the life that God has called you to. And what is that life? In short, it's the revealed things. Secret things belong to the Lord our God. Let those with him. The revealed things belong to us and to our children that we might put them into practice. And then one thing, finally, remember, I know it's kind of trite, but really, remember the reason for the season. Why did Jesus come? He came because humanity is empty. Humanity suffers with profound senses of insecurity and insignificance and out-of-controlness. And that's why the world is such a mess. It's what happened when we ate the fruit and we got all confused inside. Instead of being full, we were emptied out. Just read the book of Ruth. It's all about how God takes Naomi from being empty to being full. It's the gospel. Humanity is empty. And the reason for the season is because that's not what God originally designed in creation. He didn't design you for emptiness, but for fullness. And that's why Jesus says, I have come. I've come so that you might have life in all of its fullness. Jesus has done everything necessary. He lived a perfect life of righteousness in your place. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for all of your sins so that you can have this profound sense that you are totally secure in God's love for you. You're totally significant as a creature made in his image, formed for his purposes, and one who lives out your human control under the ultimate sovereign control of God. That's the reason for the season. 
And so may God grant us grace, uh, even in all of the busyness, which is good and fun. I never mind a busy parking lot or a busy mall at Christmas time. It's part of the fun. We can experience all of the busyness of Advent without any of the franticness or frenziedness or freneticness because we have learned to experience quietness in a noisy world. Let's pray. Blessed are you.